0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 117, Destiny Deferred. The United States was fully a great power at the time World War I started, and by virtue of European self-destruction, would only see its standing enhanced further, becoming the world's leading nation by the end of the conflict. But America would ultimately cast aside ambitions of using this new power to lead, and instead kept to its immediate interests— leaving the rest of the world to sort itself out. But in deciding between competing visions of American power, the result was kind of a close-run thing. By 1914, America was breaking new ground in its engagement with the rest of the world. Woodrow Wilson was president, having been inadvertently delivered to the office by Theodore Roosevelt after he split the Republican ticket by running against the incumbent, William Taft, as a third-party candidate. Like Roosevelt, Wilson was prone to walking softly and carrying a big stick. While declining to get involved in the morass of European great power politics, he was sure to act on what he perceived were American interests elsewhere in the world. As discussed last episode, the progressive reforms leading up to those years had enhanced state power, and while that entailed the curbing of the influence of big business, the American state still may protecting the private sector's economic interests... A priority. Under Wilson, the U.S. would intervene both politically and militarily across the Caribbean and Central America, and as World War I occupied the complete attentions of the Europeans, the Western Hemisphere largely fell into the sphere of influence of the U.S. It would be an informal network of empire, especially compared to the direct American rule in the Philippines, but for the people living in Latin America, it was a clear reality. The biggest intervention was in Mexico, which at the time was suffering from civil unrest after multiple revolutions and counter revolutions. An American occupation of the city of Veracruz, following the Mexicans arresting men of the U.S. Navy who had blundered onto Mexican territory, made the U.S. an object of fierce resentment south of the border. In 1916, the bandit slash revolutionary Pancho Villa raided a town in New Mexico, which incited public opinion in the U.S. enough that Wilson sent in an invasion army. For a year, thousands of U.S. troops would scour Mexico looking for Villa, never finding him, but showing that the U.S. was perfectly open to military interventions under the right circumstances. But again, nobody in the U.S. saw much to gain in getting involved with the Europeans. And as the storm of war finally broke on that continent in the summer of 1914, the primary American response was to try and broker deals to stop the violence. Because while the U.S. declared detachment and neutrality, it did see itself as part of the same community of nations as the Europeans. Just that their cousins across the ocean found it easier to lose their senses. It would be heartbreaking for the American public to learn of the scale of the violence as the war properly got underway, as they couldn't understand why such advanced states would descend into such barbarism. Which, hey, for once, the American body politic had a point. Another more interest-driven frustration was the inconvenience of blockades. The first blockade was that of the British against Germany, initially limiting any neutral shipping to foodstuffs and items with a clearly non-military purpose. By spring 1915, though, the Royal Navy was turning away pretty much all shipping headed to Germany, although it did make an allowance for ships carrying American cotton— A move to placate the U.S. as cotton was still a big part of the southern economy and disruptions to the trade would be ruinous. And the South already wasn't in great shape. The U.K. also blocked much of what was being delivered to neutral states like the Netherlands, Sweden, and Norway. The Germans constantly sought to have goods brought into bordering neutral states which could then be purchased there and then sent to Germany, thereby getting around the blockade at a little bit of a markup, of course. The British were wise to this and basically set the terms of international trade in Europe during the war years, which aroused no small amount of resentment among American exporters and was a major propaganda point of the Germans. A major exception to the blockade that I want to cover, one that would have, oddly enough for this show, positive consequences, was the establishment of the Commission for Relief in Belgium, or the CRB, which was headed by future president Herbert Hoover. Hoover had been working in England at the time war broke out, which caught over 100,000 American tourists by surprise. In the early days of the war, the movement of money and transportation was restricted in Europe, and Hoover independently organized shelter and transport back to the U.S. for tens of thousands of those tourists. While he had no standing in the U.S. government, the American embassy in Britain was ill-equipped for the task and gratefully turned the responsibility over to him. He had been, to that point, a businessman working for English mining interests, a role that had taken him as far afield as Australia, but didn't translate to a high profile in the U.S. itself. Bailing out tens of thousands of Americans wealthy enough to vacation to Europe changed that, and Hoover became a national hero. But he wasn't done just yet, as by the time he wound down operations helping those Americans get back home, another mission presented itself. Belgium had been invaded and occupied by Germany, and according to international law, the Germans were allowed to use Belgium's resources to support their occupation of the country. This left Belgium on the brink of starvation before the fall of 1914, and the British refused to let food be shipped there via the Netherlands. Hoover created the CRB to provide a neutral third party that would handle food shipments and distribution. The British government reluctantly agreed to back the organization, suspecting all the while that the food was, one way or the other, going to wind up in the hands of the Germans. Hoover, using his new public profile to both encourage private donations and pressure the U.S. government into providing funds as well, began raising over $10 million a month to feed the Belgians. As a citizen of a neutral country, he was able to travel to Germany and Belgium to meet with German officials to coordinate deliveries with them. He found those Germans to be an arrogant and unpleasant lot to deal with, but not wanting to totally alienate the U.S., they allowed him to proceed with his work. The CRB was so successful that the French government in 1915 arranged to have its scope expanded to German-occupied France as well. Hoover went from being an American hero to a global one. And this is all important to note because he wasn't done with food relief. His successor organization, the American Relief Administration, was one of the few things helping stabilize a war-torn Europe after World War I ended. The Germans wanted to respond to the British blockade, but their service navy wasn't strong enough to break through the UK's fleet. They fatefully turned to submarine warfare, a novel concept that had not been foreseen before the war. Whereas the British blockade would stop a ship and direct it elsewhere, the German submarines had to rely on surprise and strike swiftly, lest they themselves be set upon by much more powerful surface ships. This didn't go over well in the U.S. The government had guaranteed that its citizens would have the freedom of travel befitting a neutral state, even aboard ships belonging to nations at war. A submarine suddenly surfacing, firing torpedoes, or using its deck cannon without warning, and then slinking off, meant that its crew really didn't have time to sort through the ship's occupants. Those who went through high school in the U.S. probably have heard the name Lusitania, an ocean liner and sister ship of the Titanic, which also suffered a sad fate. Except this time, instead of an iceberg, it was at the hands of German torpedoes. 128 Americans died, and public opinion turned furious. To Germany's credit, its leadership rapidly grasped the implications of the fiasco and promised that submarine tactics from that point forward would be more conservative. The strains of both types of blockades revealed fissures in American public opinion. Wilson whose sympathies were with the British, railed against the Germans over the Lusitania. However, his own Secretary of State deemed the condemnation too harsh and resigned in protest. The East Coast elites and much of academia, either being economically linked to the UK or sympathetic to its society over that of Kaiser-era Germany, supported the Entente publicly and loudly. Germans, though, were a huge ethnic group in the U.S., and their communities had largely kept both their language and links with the old country alive. In the small towns and farms of the country, especially out in the Midwest, there was a strong and organized pro-German sentiment. America's Irish community weren't so much pro-German, but they were anti-English, so another major group were against supporting the UK. And again, many were also annoyed at the British blockade, and stories of food shortages across Europe did not endear the Entente cause to the public. Wilson, despite his sympathies, felt the moral and expedient option was to keep his neutral course, especially for the sake of his electoral chances in 1916. And his commitment to neutrality paid political dividends, as his Republican opponent in his re-election campaign was painted as a pro-war candidate, leading to a solid popular vote, although it turned out the Electoral College was kind of a squeaker. The Republican Party, the most pro-business of the two American factions, favored the Entente due to those business connections. And it was a matter of practicality that big business started to favor the Entente. Whatever the moral argument, the reality was that the markets of the central powers were closed. The ones for the Entente were open, assuming you can get past the U-boats and the Entente were hungry customers too, so businesses made a mint even without the German markets. The other economic link that only got bigger over time with the Entente was in finance. Longtime listeners already know that the Entente took out huge loans with Wall Street banks, and the financiers themselves were among those who supported the UK, especially J.P. Morgan Jr., the son of, well, J.P. Morgan Sr., who personally wanted to see Britain prevail in the conflict junior had inherited his dad's business interests and like his father was a titan of the financial world the entente secured almost bottomless funding whereas the germans were cut out as the war years dragged on the entente became economic investments if they were to lose then the u.s economy would likely be out a lot of money this doesn't make for a very neutral nation in the long term Though it is worth noting that much of the credits going to the Entente were purely private loans, unbacked by the U.S. government in any capacity. J.P. Morgan Jr. himself had approached the U.S. Federal Reserve and the Wilson administration directly, asking for protections in case the Entente were to default at some point, but was rebuffed. And for the first half of the war, neutrality worked for the U.S. While the other major economies of the world destroyed themselves, Americas expanded by leaps and bounds. And this was instantly recognized by the entire country as well. They could start taking the lead in world affairs. Why not use their overwhelming influence to try and broker a peace? And Wilson tried just that, multiple times, sending missions to try and bring the Europeans to the table. The Europeans at each side, though, were all in on victory. The American proposals advocated largely a return to the status quo before the war, although by 1916 they were dangling alsace lorraine to the French. The Europeans, though, were not interested in the old status quo, and the fighting dragged on. Wilson, in early 1917, tried to shame both sides by demanding each major belligerent clearly state its war aims publicly. This actually caught the Entente off guard, as many of their secret provisions of annexations were just that, secret, and also because they felt aggrieved at having to explain themselves when German armies were occupying Belgium and northern France. Luckily, the Germans were as tactless as ever and brushed aside Wilson's demand before the Entente could respond, saving them the trouble. Wilson would not let up, though, and on January 22, 1917, delivered a speech before the Senate calling for a peace without victory. The crux of his point was that true victory for either side in the war was impossible and that the only sensible course was to lay aside the militarism of the past and develop international organizations to prevent such a conflict from ever happening again. Without naming it, he was basically proposing the League of Nations, a league that would be dominated by the U.S. through the simple virtue that it had not participated in the mad slaughter. For the first time, an American president was laying down a vision for an international order that expected the other powers of the world to fall in line to, which was extraordinary for a nation that had for so long stayed out of the affairs of other major powers. And this was actually a fact that was recognized by the other major players, too, and it scared the hell out of the Entente. The most recent big international move the U.S. had made between great powers had been back in the Russo-Japanese War, and in that case, its role was to mediate the terms of Japan's victory. The Entente feared the U.S. would be mediating Germany's victory over them. Moreover, this international vision that Wilson was offering at the very least implied the submission of the European empires to a new international system being devised by the Americans and feared that Wilson's peacenick approach would split public opinion in their own home countries. Heck, it could even be construed as questioning the legitimacy of all the belligerent governments. They were all participants in the bloodletting, after all. The left in both the UK and France were starting to get restless, and there was growing public support for Wilson's peace efforts. It seemed like an opportune moment for Germany to engage in a little diplomacy to court Wilson while he was rallying up the Entente, but then the Teutonic team of Hindenburg and Ludendorff were appointed as Germany's warlords. And when you live your life as a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. And they applied their military mindset to work by rolling the dice on bringing the UK to its knees and declaring unrestricted submarine warfare as the order of the day. This was internally authorized on January 9, 1917, when the Germans had grown pessimistic about their own chances and decide to mobilize and militarize further to force a peace on their terms. From that time onward, German subs would be allowed to strike at will with no warning against any target. It allowed for the U-boats to rack up some impressive kill-death ratios, but was strategically disastrous. Wilson's public rebuke of J.P. Morgan and the other U.S. bankers had demonstrated that the U.S. was no pawn of the Entente, and the British blockade had unnerved the Americans in how casually the U.K. could dictate global trade. The German ambassador to the U.S. advised his superiors in Berlin that the most devastating attack they could do against the Entente was to convince Wilson to shut down the flow of Wall Street loans and hinder trade going to them. Already, the progressives had imposed special taxes on exports to Europe, which admittedly was to try and control inflation resulting from so much money sloshing around the economy as a result of the Entente spending, but it showed that there might be some will to contain American support for the Entente. The German high command, though, had little grasp of this and declared America a lost cause and an inevitable Entente ally. With the submarines having reached their battle stations by January 31st, the American government was informed that the Atlantic would no longer be safe for any shipping headed to Entente ports. The sub-campaign was a provocation that could not be ignored and instantly turned public opinion against the Germans, clearing the way for the U.S. to break relations with that country on February 3rd. Still, though, Wilson held to neutrality, even as relations deteriorated. How long the U.S. could have tolerated the submarine blockade would be purely hypothetical, because the Germans followed it up with another diplomatic disaster. In late February, the Germans pitched the Mexican government on the idea of aligning together, and the Mexicans invading the southern U.S. to retake what they had lost 70 years previous. This was the infamous Zimmerman note, and it was met with almost disbelief by the Americans when it was presented to them by the British, who had intercepted the note. There was so much disbelief that it's sometimes mistakenly said to have been a ruse conceived by the British. It was outlandish because Mexico was racked by civil conflict, and while they certainly didn't like the U.S. after the American expedition that had only just wound down at the time, they were in no shape to invade. But it was consistent with how the Germans were acting at the time. They thought the U.S. joining against them was a foregone conclusion. So there was nothing to lose, and it fit with their attempts at stirring up trouble on every possible front around the globe. German agents tried to get Indians to rebel against the Raj, Afghanistan to launch attacks on India. They supported Senussi uprisings in Egypt and Libya, and backed every ethnic group looking to split from Russia. Money was sent to Sun Yat-sen and the KMT in China to help them oppose the Entente-allied government in Beijing. No matter how harebrained the scheme, the Germans rolled the dice. Wilson finally asked the US Congress to declare war on Germany on April 2, 1917. There was little opposition to the war declaration and for the first time, the American military was going to Europe. This was a big test, but the decades of steady centralization of the US state allowed for the nation to mobilize huge resources. The failures of the peace missions to Europe in 1915 and 16 had convinced Congress to begin boosting military spending already in the summer of 1916, so the groundwork had already started to be laid. Ironically, a lot of the military spending on the Navy was with an eye towards challenging the British due to their naval blockade, but now the ships would be put to use in support of the Royal Navy. In addition, the recent ratification of the 16th Amendment to the US Constitution in 1913 had allowed for an income tax to be collected. The intent of taxing income was meant to corral the runaway fortunes of the country's elites and was a notable victory of the progressive movement. Just a handful of years later, though, this method of taxation would help fund a vast expansion of the nation's military capabilities. Two million men were raised to act as the American Expeditionary Force, with another two million raised by the time hostilities concluded. And while it would take until well into 1918 for this force to be fully trained, equipped, and deployed, they were fresh troops manning complete units compared to the depleted Germans. But even more so than fighting men, it was the economic juggernaut that was the U.S. that would set it head and shoulders above both its enemies and allies. Which was kind of what happened 25 years later during World War II, but with some caveats. Uh, The Americans entered the war in April 1917, just a year and a half before hostilities concluded. American industry didn't quite have the time to convert itself over to war production, and its main contributions were raw materials and components rather than finished armaments. When American soldiers reached European shores, they would largely be equipped with French weaponry outside of their basic gear and rifles on account of the Entente's industries being much more advanced than what the U.S. had to offer at the time. American industry, especially shipbuilding, would more than catch up by mid-1918, but by then the fate of the war had already been decided. The most long-term impact of America on the war's resolution was Wilson's 14 Points Manifesto, Delivered on January 8, 1918 to the U.S. Congress, almost exactly a year after his Peace Without Victory speech, he outlined his vision which would supplant the baser war aims of the European empires. The big bullet points were equality between nations, general disarmament, self-determination of peoples to live in a country of their choosing, and the creation of an association of nations. While the ideas were nothing new from what Wilson had been saying for some time already, this was a public gauntlet being thrown down. Whereas the other big Entente nations were still acting shifty about their war aims, Wilson rejected annexations for annexation's sake outright, and established that the peace that was to come would be based on liberal morals, not on power politics. The ability for communities and ethnicities to decide their own fate would trump the desires of those controlling the conquering army. Entente diplomacy was turned on its head as the general publics of the world went wild for the simple, concise, and moreover just-sounding aims that Wilson declared would apply to all belligerents. And despite some reservations over how they would be applied in practice, Wilson's new allies agreed to adopt them as their own. They had little choice in the matter, given that the U.S. was now their paymaster. The entire Entente war effort had almost come to the brink of collapse when Wilson froze additional war credits in the winter of 1916 to 1917, and it was only German incompetence that had saved them. The only way they were able to fight the war to the finish was being propped up by American loans. Loans which you are all well aware would cause so much tribulation in Western Europe in the post-war years. With the Entente bolstered by American finance and shiploads of resources and the Central Powers totally blockaded and starving, the war became a foregone conclusion. There would still be tragic battles after the failure of the German Spring Offensive of 1918, as the summer and early fall saw the German army be steadily pushed back. The lack of food, though, was what finally did the trick, and both the front lines and home front broke down. The German high command lost its nerve, and the civilians stepped in to surrender. It was Wilson who would set the terms, and he demanded an acquiescence to the 14 points, and strikingly, the removal of the Kaiser as head of government, and the implementation of civilian control. This had not exactly been discussed with the UK and France, and both powers kind of looked askance at each other as the US set the terms of engagement there. They had wanted the Kaiser to make the surrender personally, supposing that if his regime collapsed beforehand, that whatever replaced it would be permanently marked by the stain of defeat, which was exactly what happened But Wilson was thinking in absolutes and did not consider that democracy, once established, could be considered illegitimate. Which, uh, yeah, that is a big whoops there. Kind of uh, underestimated the German people's capacity to dismiss democracy. But victory had been achieved and it looked like, at first, that it would be a triumph of Wilsonianism. Of measured progressivism. The problems started showing, though, almost immediately. Most of which you are all well familiar with by this point. The annexationist tendencies of the victors were reigned in, the militarist empires of Europe were brought down low, and liberal democracy was seen as the way of the future across most of the world. The problem is that most everybody thought that the world's mightiest liberal democracy, the U.S., would be at the vanguard of the new order. Wilson, after all, had pushed his policies not only in the United States, but onto the receptive audiences of Europe as well. And politicians there actually responded positively willingly embracing Wilson's ideas. The catch was that Wilson's position back in the U.S. was eroding away, and he wouldn't be able to make commitments to stabilize a world in disarray. I've mentioned in past episodes, but the 1918 midterm elections really were some of the most consequential in American history, at least by the standards of midterms. The Republicans broke the slender advantage of the Democrats in the House and edged out a majority in the Senate as well. The reason why the American electorate shifted, if ever so slightly, while there was still a war going on, was due to economic issues. Inflation was getting out of hand in the U.S. as more and more money poured into the economy, driving up costs. Wilson, focused on the experimental restructuring of the world, didn't pay enough attention to affairs at home, and it cost him dearly conservative Republicans would stonewall proposals to join the League of Nations and even outright reject the Treaty of Versailles, citing both as commitments that would violate the country's sovereignty and expose it to the corrupting influences of international power politics, which would basically be the tone of American foreign policy after 1920, so it was an indicator of what was to come. I am simplifying things a bit here for the sake of brevity. Most every American politician opposed to internationalism had their own personal take on the country's foreign engagement, but an aversion to binding commitments that could play to the advantage of foreigners was what it boiled down to. It also didn't help that Wilson himself didn't want to compromise his vision. Some of the Republican opposition were willing to entertain supporting Wilson if he watered down some of America's world police commitments in regards to joining the league and enforcing the peace. Now, whether these offers were genuine or meant only to cause further confusion while Congress deliberated on how to to proceed, I don't know. But it didn't really matter. Wilson was inflexible and rejected them out of hand. He opted to go on a railroad tour of the country to take his message to the people, one that was cut short by a stroke that incapacitated him for the rest of his term. Not only did the people decline to nudge Congress to support Wilson, the president himself opted to hide the extent of his condition and secluded himself in the White House. For the latter part of 1919 onwards, the executive branch had only fitful leadership at the top, leaving the cabinet to its own devices. Congress, for its part, sensed the conservative mood of the nation and killed hopes for league membership in the spring of 1920. And that finally brings us to the United States in the interwar era. Wilson would not be long for the presidency, though he was delusional enough that he believed that he could win a third term in the state he was in. The nation was seeing its savings and wages be wiped out by inflation, and millions of soldiers were reentering the civilian life. The country looked out to the rest of the world and didn't see a lot there for them, leading the nation to turn inward. This spelled disaster for the surge of liberal democracy in the early 20s. Without a committed champion to support the new governments and under pressure from communists wishing to join with Lenin's new state, most nations that had embraced Wilsonianism as their way of the future turned towards authoritarianism instead. Think back especially to my episodes on the Balkan states for good examples of democracies failing left and right. But even before the rest of the world grew darker, America's isolationist mentality would cause a round of chaos and death back at home. A recession in the American economy... Rapid inflation, racial tensions, fear of immigrants and foreigners, a backlash against progressivism, and years of paranoia about society being undermined from somewhere abroad caused a psychic break that would result in the Red Scare and Red Summer of 1919, which would in turn cause the nation to only turn further inward as the people begged only for the stability they had known before the war. And will be the topic for next week. So join me then, and as always...